that giving looks like arms stretched out. Lord, we give knowing in full confidence that everything that we ever give to you, whether it is our time, our talents, our treasures, nothing is ever wasted by you, and you will use all things for your glory. In the name of your Son, amen. Amen. Shut up and love me. Shut up and love me. My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. And today your job is to shut up and love me. I just, my, I'm never really allowed to say shut up in church unless it's part of a title. So I'm going to say it a lot today. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. And love me. <clears throat> Today we're talking about 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> this is a chapter that a lot of people want to read as a poem at weddings and stuff like that. And that's, while it's, it's nice to read at a wedding, it's a terrible application of the scripture. Um, and we're going to read it here in just a minute. But what I want to make sure that you understand is 1 Corinthians 13 is not just about love. 1 Corinthians 13 is a parenthetical statement within a treatise toward a church that was a bad church, a church that was doing just about everything wrong. And it's in the, the uh, passage talking about how bad they were at using spiritual gifts, particularly gifts that were miraculous. So we're going to talk about it. Let's just read it along today. Here's what Paul says after rebuking them harshly in chapter 12 and then rebuking them again later on in chapter 14 about this whole idea of tongues and healing and things like that. And here's what he says. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, <clears throat> I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, you're very annoying. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. I didn't like that last part because that's that rude part. I struggle with that. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at somebody's mistakes, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So like we like to do in the garden, we have to look at the historical, the theological, and the devotional application of Scripture. History answers the questions, what about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? Theologicals, what about God? What did he do? Why and how did he do it? And then and only then can we answer the devotional question, what about me? What am I supposed to do? Why and how do I do it? And what happens is a lot of people skip the historical part when they look at Corinthians 13. And because of that, 
they get a terrible application of this. So let's look at um, the historical part. While I understand that this chapter, people think about marriage and they think about love, it's not. It's a chapter in the context of two other chapters about how a church was conducting itself within worship. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, particularly miraculous ones, in chapter 12, 13, and 14. So 13 isn't directly about love and marriage, although there are some devotional applications we could certainly glean from it. That's not the point. It's about a church that was actually being abusive to people by glorifying miracles. I also never understood why some people use these three chapters as a treatise on a proof of why they should be able to have spiritual gifts like tongues and things like that. In fact, these three chapters are Paul teaching, hey, you're a bad church, and you should focus less on these miracles and more on love. So what we see historically is Paul rebukes them in chapters 12 and 13 and 14. And what we see, the reason he rebukes them is because they love the glory gifts, the showy gifts, the ones that got the spotlight, the ones that made them look really talented or really spiritual or the ones that made them important. And what began to happen in this church at Corinth is these speaking in tongues and the healing and the prophesying and all this other stuff, it became a race for prestige and power and influence. People were competing with each other to see who could have the most impressive gifts so that they could have the most important positions of influence. It became a Holy Spirit competition. Oh, I have more of the Spirit than you because I speak this much. And, well, I have more of the Spirit than you because when I speak, people don't even understand what I'm saying. It's still godly. What? I have the Holy Spirit so strong that I can heal people and speak. Oh, yeah, well, I have the Holy Spirit. Ah, forget it. I lose. And it was a Holy Spirit competition. They're racing against one another. Who can be filled with the Spirit first? Like somehow they had control over it. It's a contest of sensationalism and experience. You understand what was going on? They were worshiping experience more than they were worshiping Jesus. They were worshiping experience more than they loved one another. I got news for you. These gifts were never meant to comfort Christians. They weren't meant to meet your emotional needs to make you feel closer to God, like, oh, I'm really in touch with God today because I'm praying or speaking in tongues. I'm really connected. That's not what the point of these gifts were. They weren't developed by God to help us advance in our walk with Jesus to make us more like him. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the purpose. But that's what the Corinthians thought, and Paul was saying, you got it all wrong. So let's look at the theological part of this. The purpose for the miracles was the gospel, period. The New Testament purpose for people to hear the gospel in their own language. 
It also would affirm the authority of the gospel as being from God. In fact, did you know that every mention of an actual moment where tongues were used was for the spreading of the gospel? The only place where tongues were used for joyfulness or feeling good or feeling connected to God, Paul rebukes them. Hey, you got it wrong. That's not what it's for. It's not for you to feel like you're super godly. The only time the tongues were used for that way was Paul saying, hey, you got it wrong. Matter of fact, I'm going to look at a passage. I love this. And this is kind of mirrors and kind of, um, there's a couple other places in Acts where they talk about it, but this really kind of is the same concept. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking, aren't they Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? In other words, what was going on? There were a lot of devout Jewish men who had come from a long way away to celebrate one of the high feast days. And they come to Jerusalem, and the disciples are there preaching in languages that they didn't know. And these Jews were saying, wait a minute, these guys are from Galilee. Not only that, they're fishermen. They've never even been to school. How can they speak in my language? There are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, proselytes being people who were Gentiles who became Jews. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked them and said, the only reason they can speak those tongues is because they're drunk. <laughs> It's not a miracle. Wait, i got to tell you something. It'd be more of a miracle that I could start speaking Spanish because of beer <laughs> than the Holy Spirit give me the ability to speak Spanish. But that's what they thought. So this, is the, this was the first time tongues were spoken in a public place. This is what it was about. And in Acts, there's a couple other examples of this. So let me give you an understanding. There are basically three camps on this whole thing about tongues. And we have to talk about the tongues to get to the real concept of the passage, because why? That is the context. First of all, there are three camps. There are those that believe that all these gifts are gone, that they're not around anymore. No more tongues, no more healing, no more prophecy, all that stuff is gone. There are those that believe that they're all here. And within that, there are two views of people who believe they're all here. There's the Corinthian view, which is, it's here for us to enjoy and to have fun, and to be connected to the Holy Spirit, and to feel edified, and built up, and encouraged. That's what they're for. And then there's the other view, the biblical view, which is they're here so that people can hear the gospel when they need to hear it. And then there's a third camp that believe that some are still here, and some are gone. Well, these are still around, but not these. Like, for example, no more resurrecting of the dead, but you can have some healing and you can have some tongues. But, you know, so there's three camps. I'm going to tell you, 
I kind of differ a little bit from most of my Reformed brothers and sisters on my view of this. So I'm going to tell you what I think is the biblical aspect of this. And I'm, listen, I'm just a man, so I'm only 99% certain I'm right. So with that in mind, just know that there's a small room for error. I'm just kidding. I do believe that miraculous gifts can occur today. That might surprise some of you. But it's only for the reasons outlined in the New Testament. Where the gospel needs to be heard by those who don't have it in their language. See, this is an example. Let me explain to you why. This is an example of the sovereign God of salvation giving the gift of faith to whoever needs to hear it by any means necessary. I believe God is sovereign in salvation. I believe God chooses, and I believe God enlightens. I believe God quickens. I believe God gives us faith, which is what? It's a gift, and he can do it any way he wants. And if somebody needs to hear the gospel and it's not in their language, I think God can overcome that according to his will. I believe that's possible. This is an example of God giving the gift of faith. Saving people in spite of their spiritual, mental, emotional, cultural shortcomings that might keep them from being able to know Jesus like there's this boundary, this barrier, and God says barriers mean nothing to me when it comes to the gospel. They were not for personal fulfillment And they are not today for personal fulfillment. They're not for some emotional, ecstatic bliss that we could experience. Oh, I had a great time in church today. Why? I spoke in tongues. It's for the advancement of the kingdom. It's not for some measure of spiritual growth. In fact, this is what Paul is rebuking in the passage He says, you guys, you think speaking in tongues and healing is all that. i got to tell you something. It's not all that. Love is more important than that. These gifts were, and I believe are here, for the spread of the gospel to those that need to hear it but can't. Look at this passage in Romans. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is Paul talking about the use of tongues and the gospel. Now, some people in the camp that say they're no longer around, well, historically, there was a big gap in between, you know, the New Testament and then about 1860, the the charismatic movement kind of hijacked the idea of tongues and this Uza Street revival in Canada and Toronto blessing and some other places came up and people started speaking in tongues again. And so some people that say that gifts aren't around historically, well, history is not what we base our theology on, is it? We base it on the gospel, on the word of God, the authority of scripture. So, with that being said, we understand that these gifts are for the gospel, for loving and serving others, not ourselves. They weren't so that we could feel good about our devotions one day. It wasn't so we could reach some emotional high in a worship service. That's not what they're about. They're about the kingdom. 
Can you see how the Corinthians were letting miraculous gifts derail this kind of love for each other and this kind of commitment they need for the gospel? Can you see that? Can you see how this church in Corinth had gotten so distracted by these miraculous gifts that they were worshiping those instead of Jesus? That they were committed to making those more present than they were the gospel? With that in mind, let's look at the devotional application of this passage. What does love even look like? I mean, think about the descriptions that Paul gives of love and how it compares to the way the church in Corinth was handling these spiritual gifts. First of all, love is patient. Love doesn't brag. Think about this in context of how they were handling the gifts. Love doesn't seek prestige. Love doesn't act rudely. Like when somebody's talking and all of a sudden you bust out into tongues. Love doesn't resent success. I've got to get more tongues because this person has more of than me. That's what was going on in Corinth. Love doesn't enjoy others' failures. Aha, your tongues didn't work right. There was no interpreter. <laughs> Mine, I had an interpreter, yeah. I got this down. <clears throat> Love overcomes anything. Love outlasts anything. Can you see how other things in our church life can be what tongues were to Corinth? Can you see that we can begin to venerate or desire things that can distract us from the primary focus, which is the gospel and loving one another, and by the way, they are not Things that can be extricated from each other. Love and the gospel. Where the gospel is present, there is love. Period. So let's look at some obsessions that might overshadow love and the gospel. In the church, you ready? I wanna, I've kind of divided them into two sections. There's the feel the spirit moments. Here's the feel the spirit moments that are sought in things like miraculous gifts. Oh, that was great like they are some from, for some personal emotional benefit. Or the spirit, feel the spirit moments that we find in our favorite worship music. I love that song, Good, Good Father. Boy, I've heard people say, you know what? That song was anointed. You know what that really means? You liked it. It's not, it's not that song is specially chosen by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit really likes that song. Is that what anoint? No, it just means I really enjoyed that song. It met me where I was. It was good. But sometimes we seek this experience, this feel the spirit moment in a song. Sometimes we seek it in strict liturgy that we somehow think, no, not the contemporary stuff, but the high church stuff. That contemporary music cannot be used by the spirit. Oh, yes, it can. I felt it. No, you have to have strict liturgy. Sometimes we can worship that more than love. And sometimes we, people can feel the spirit moment. It happens in liturgy. Sometimes it happens in our favorite teachers. Whether it be Pastor Steve or me or Megan or, you know, somebody else on TV. Hopefully not Joel Olstein. Uh-oh, I just got some people mad. Uh-oh. <laughs> Woo! 
There's another camp, the feel-good moments. So you got the feel-the-spirit moments, and you got the feel-good moments that are sought in things like power and position within the church. Oh, don't worry, I got influence. I'll make sure we go the right way. I'm running this show. I'm like Jay-Z of church. (laughs) Then there's the other feel-good moments, acquiring knowledge to show off. Oh, yeah? Well, I know six points of Calvinism, not just five. Made one up. (laughs) Then there's another feel-good moment. This is one I think a lot of you might fall into, and some of you, but I've actually talked with you about this. Church tasks and responsibilities. Taking on too much. I'm not judging your motives or your heart, because sometimes they're good. But you can see how we could pursue a feel-good moment through these things, right? And that makes these feel-the-spirit moments and these feel-good moments selfish not selfless, but love is selfless. See, when a church obsesses over anything other than the gospel, when the church obsesses over anything other than the gospel, we are Corinth. When a church pursues a feeling or an experience, we are Corinth. When programs become more important than people. Did you hear me? When programs become more important than people, we are Corinth. But when a church preaches the gospel through love, its impact will endure for eternity. And I left out the third slide earlier, kind of a last-second thing. I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I'm just going to read to you verses 11 through 13 of Corinthians When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. What is a child mostly? Selfish. They're cute. Don't get me wrong. I like them. But, you know, I want my bottle. I want to be held. I want to play. I want to run. I don't want you to hug me. (laughs) But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. What does that mean? It simply means this. Love is evidence that the gospel is priority over all else. Love is evidence of the gospel's effect in our lives. It is evidence that there is nothing more important. And so the concept that I want to drive home for you today that I want you to leave with is this. Ask yourself the question, are there any areas in your life that you are Corinth? Are there things that seem good on the surface that you have made more important than the gospel? Because I'll tell you this, The only reason anything exists in the church should be for love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything else is selfish and a waste of time, people, and money.